This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. With the United States military withdrawal from the war-torn South Central Asian country, Afghanistan has been, along with the COVID-19 pandemic, one of the two top stories in the news the last few weeks. Bloomington is home to a person who has devoted much of his time and energy to understanding just exactly who lives in that ancient land and what American soldiers, diplomats, and contractors were doing there for 20 years. Doug Wissing has traveled to Afghanistan on several occasions, spending weeks and months there at a time. Wissing has been embedded with units of the American forces stationed in Afghanistan. He lived, ate, slept, and went out on patrols with regular Army contingents traveling so deep into the country that he met people who often never had encountered anyone from a foreign land or even from a 21st century culture. Doug Wissing has written about this cultural shock, as well as all the issues surrounding America's longest war. He's the author of a total of a half dozen books, two of which deal directly with Afghanistan, the war, and his time there. He's written Funding the Enemy, released in March 2012 by Prometheus Press, and Hopeless but Optimistic, published by IU Press in 2016. We did a feature on Doug for the WFHB News back in 2017, an eight-minute long piece, but as we so often do here at Big Talk, we spoke with Doug for quite a long time, much more than could be fit into such a tight time slot. Now that the United States forces have left Afghanistan, we thought it would be a perfect time to revisit that long interview and, it would be hoped, gain some insight into this nation's military adventure there. So here's that interview, minimally edited, aired for the first time in its near entirety. Here's author and journalist Douglas A. Wissing. This is Big Talk. You have been described as an adventurer. Well, I don't know about that. Well, you've been all over the world. You've done fascinating things, and one of the most fascinating things is uh, your time embedded in Afghanistan several times. I went out there three times and embedded with different army units around the east and south of Afghanistan where the insurgency is raging. The reason we bring this up is uh, your book, published by IU Press, Hopeless but Optimistic. It is about what goes on in Afghanistan. And what the heck is it about Afghanistan that keeps pulling you back? I've had a long interest in Central Asia. I had uh, done a lot of research in Tibet initially, I wrote a book called pioneer in Tibet, about mm -hmm. an early explorer of Tibet who introduced Tibet to America, who was a Hoosier, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. went out there in the early, uh, very early 20th century. And I've spent a fair amount of time in the Pashtun regions prior to 9-11, so I had some sense of the Pashtun people who are the, the insurgent group in Afghanistan, primarily that uh, they comprise the Taliban. So I had some sense of those folks before the war started in 2001. 
And I, I find mountain people fascinating, and both the Tibetans and the, the Pashtuns are certainly that. So I, I had some understanding of certain dynamics in Central Asia, and I had run across an army team of what are called farmer soldiers. They were agribusiness development team uh, that were comprised of National Guardsmen who were going out to Afghanistan uh, to do development work, win hearts and minds, or WAM in the uh, military acronym. Right. They were doing WAM work, trying to convince Pashtun farmers up in the mountains in Taliban country that they should ally with the Afghan government, the U.S.-supported Afghan government, by doing development work. And these teams were uh, comprised of uh, about 65 soldiers, generally elite soldiers that were both military people and agricultural specialists. And they were unique in the Afghanistan war because they were development teams that had their own security. So they had their own armored vehicles. They had their own security teams. They could go out whenever they wanted. So 90% of the American soldiers never leave the bases, never break the wire. The agribusiness development teams did just the opposite. They did hundreds of missions out into Afghanistan. I embedded with a number of those teams from different states, Texas, Kentucky, Kansas, Mississippi, South Carolina, Indiana, three different times. And they were strategically positioned through the war zones. So because they were doing development, because they were involved with combat missions, because they had to then coordinate with all the combat teams, because they were involved with the Afghan government, because they were essentially negotiating with the Taliban shadow government out in the villages to do the development projects, you saw every aspect of the war in Afghanistan, including what's called the civ-mil combinations, the military-civilian combination. So there were frontline diplomats out there. Uh, and you got to see all of that. It was a great lens to look at the entire war. And um, I, it was why I stuck with those teams. So here's a population of people that's fairly isolated. They're living in mountains. They're living in an almost unknown corner of the world, unknown to us here in America generally. And in come strangers trying to tell them what to do. How does that work? Well, if you can imagine, you're in a convoy of armored vehicles, typically a minimum of five. So these are kind of rolling bank vaults, grinding up these switchbacks into these essentially 13th century villages. Hmm. And... The security soldiers get out. You have to, your security platoon gets out first. And they're dressed in 50 pounds of body armor. They're carrying 75 pounds of, of weaponry and ammunition. There's machine gunners on top of the, uh, of the armored vehicle. There's, sometimes there's going to be an Apache helicopter circling above. And the Afghans come out and they sit down with you under the shura tree, under the meeting tree, the shade tree at the edge of the village. And then these kind of stormtroopers start saying, well, do you want this project? Do you want that? We, you know, we, we have this idea. And, and, you know, with that comes this whole Western expectation of 
we're going to modernize. We're going yeah. to change the way your culture is. And who wouldn't want that in our view, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and sometimes I tell people, well, this would be how it would be. Imagine eight-foot-tall Taliban on armored flying carpets, and they come swooping in and tell all our women to put on burqas. Wow. And I'd be thinking the shotguns would be coming out. Right. And that's kind of what happens in Afghanistan. They, the Afghans have, they have a thousand-year-old warrior culture. They've beaten Alexander the Great. They've beaten Genghis Khan. They've beaten the British three times. They sure ran the Russians out. And what we're looking at now is essentially a failed war. Mm -hmm. A Kentucky soldier, a sergeant, he said to me, who was on one of these development teams, he said, the Afghans ain't buying what we're selling. That's scary stuff. We're still doing that, but maybe we're hitting our heads against the brick wall. Well, we're, people forget that this is still our largest military and development entanglement by far. The State Department and the Pentagon requested $44 billion for war and development projects for fiscal 2017. Now, that's a number. But what that contrasts against $44 billion, they're only asking $5 billion for Syria and fighting ISIS. Right. We've been doing this for 15 years now. Yes. The total bill just for Afghanistan, not, not Iraq, just Afghanistan is now over a trillion dollars. That's what the taxpayers are on the hook for. An inconceivable amount of money. Bigger than my head can really get around unless I'm really focusing. Right. And it's, it's going on, yet we have failed at our military and diplomatic goals. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has been growing in strength by double-digit numbers every year since at least 2005. They control more ground now than they ever have. And some intelligence analysts tell me that they're literally controlling 90% of the countryside in Afghanistan. Those, number, you know, those numbers are very fluid. There's shadow governments in virtually every province in Afghanistan. And yeah. in some cases, they're literally running the province. Kabul, I can testify, is under siege. Huh. It's just, you know, to move around in Afghanistan in the countryside for somebody like me is almost impossible unless I'm with security. And in Kabul, it's very dangerous. The, the threat of, of kidnapping and, and uh, bombs going off are just, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. So what, so what you've got is this growing insurgency that continue. that's a popularly based insurgency in certain parts of the country, major swaths of the country, and there's a, there's a dictum, a very old special ops dictum, special forces dictum, which is if an insurgency isn't shrinking, it's winning. Right. And that's what we've got here. When, when we invaded Afghanistan in 2001, it was at the bottom of virtually every human development indices. Life expectancy, literacy, uh, electricity, run down the list. It's 15 years later. We have spent more money on aid and development in Afghanistan than we spent on the Marshall Plan, adjusted for inflation. We spent more. And Afghanistan is a country of only about 30 million people who make, on average, $400 a year. Right. More money than the Marshall Plan. 
Fifteen years later, Afghanistan remains at the bottom of virtually every human development indices. Life expectancy, literacy, it goes, you run down the list. And that's a, that's a shocking figure because, as we know, the Marshall Plan rebuilt a continent, essentially, several hundred million people. Well, what, what I discovered, when, when I first went out to Afghanistan, I didn't really have a sense of anything of what I was going to be expecting. And the soldiers started telling me we'd be out in Taliban country in these armored vehicles. And they'd start saying, this counterinsurgency is so messed up, we're funding both sides of the war. And I was thinking initially it was just grunts griping. I mean, it's pretty tense when you're out and you just, you know, kind of blow off steam to try and get through it. And I started then asking officers about, like, so we're, we're like, funding the Taliban? And they would say, look, wild geese, and change the subject. <laughs> and I started looking into it more. I started getting some kind of crucial terms that allowed me then to delve into it more. And I came back to Indiana. I started doing a gargantuan amount of research and interviews, hundreds of interviews, mountains of think tank reports and government reports and media reports. And I discovered what I kind of put understood was that there was this toxic network that connected ambitious American careerists, people out there punching their ticket, for-profit military industrial and development industrial corporations, extremely corrupt Afghan insiders. Afghanistan is now ranked among the very most corrupt governments on the planet. That all happened since we invaded. Mm-hmm. And the Taliban. Everybody was in on the take. One, one really smart intelligence officer, he, uh, we, were, we were on an embattled forward operating base in Logwin province. It had been a bad night, and he was standing out on a, on a uh, funky little hut that, that the military-industrial complex builds, hundreds of thousands of them all over Afghanistan. He starts talking about he's... He was a, uh, a drug cop from, El- from uh, Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, this war, it's, it's just like the mafia. You know, everybody's in on the take. And he starts running through how the military wins and the industrial complex wins and the Taliban government officials win and, the Tal- you know, everybody wins. And uh, he said, you know, it's the perfect war. Everybody makes money. Wow. What you've just described probably fills most of the pages of your book just previous to Hopeless But Optimistic, Funding the Enemy. That's right. Two books on the blood swamp, the money swamp, that is Afghanistan. Now, interestingly, before that, your books were of a little lighter bent. Uh, I, I think I might say now, for instance, Indiana one pint at a time. That was yours. A History of Indiana Brewing. In writing. Pioneer in Tibet, as you've mentioned. And then there was a book called Crown Hill. Mm. So you've been around the book publishing uh, industry. Now, what I want to ask you is, how did uh, the Carnegie Library in Vincennes, your hometown, how did that play into your development as as a writer? Well, you know, I did, I grew up in... The great era of print literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in Vincennes, this tiny little town, I read four newspapers a day. The Carnegie Library was about two blocks from my house. I could walk there from the time I was six years old 
There were two big streets I had to cross, but mm-hmm. I could I could do that. Look both ways. Look both ways, and it was about the size of the the old Carnegie Library here at what is that Sixth and Washington, which is now the Monroe County History Center. That's right. So if you can kind of imagine that with with just great librarians in there, Miss Batman, you know, who was just <laughs> like kept it all under control, and, right? And, you know, you could read your way through the library. Yeah, and that's kind of what I did. So it was that great path into the larger world. So you were one of those kids who didn't need to be drugged by the hand uh, to read a book. Now they threw me out. They threw you <laughs> out. <laughs> they had to go home at some certain point. So since that time, you've written about topics like food and fine art and music, architecture, I noticed, uh, Belgian Trappist brewers and Red Skelton. You've written about all those topics. I've gotten around. You've written for uh, some uh, pretty amazing publications, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, I hope I'm not making you blush over here. Los Angeles Times, the uh, uh, journal Foreign Policy. Uh, even uh, things like Travel and Leisure and Savure. You've written for those things. You love to write. Yeah. Where do you do it? Well, I live over in Prospect Hill, and um, I have a little 19th century Greek Revival cottage. And for years, I wrote in my kitchen table, a big old wooden harvest table. And it would take over, the book would always take over everything. Right. So it was always a big thing when the book finally got done. I could put all the papers away. People could come over and actually have dinner at the the, uh, (laughs) harvest table. And I recently moved where I have a bigger office and still in Prospect Hill, still another 19th century cottage, but um, I've got a bigger office. So, that's so now you're in a dedicated space for it, your... Uh, it, yeah, I actually had an office at my first house, but it just yeah. kind of migrated. So. Well, you know, an interesting thing, uh, I read a uh, biography of Damon Runyon once, w- which said he had to write in front of a blank wall. With a blank piece of paper, he needed no outside stimuli, which is the opposite of me. I need a ton of stimulation to get me thinking and going and writing. How about you for stimulation? Yes or no? I I really have to have quiet. Mm-hmm. And, and at the early stages of formulating something, I use the reading room at the Monroe County Library. Even just being in my house is too much. As I'm trying to figure out what it is, or I have a a great friend in Vermont who loans me this refurbished church. That's oh. a, a little church up in the mountains in Vermont, and I'll go there and, you know, spend a couple of weeks just sorting out what is it that I know, and how do I want to express that. Maybe the hardest part of putting a book together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What the heck do I have, and how do I condense it, and how do I organize it? Mm-hmm. Yikes. You had mentioned these two books about Afghanistan. And the first book, Funding the Enemy, at the time I was writing that, 2009, 2010, telling people that our counterinsurgency was totally dysfunctional was a pretty radical thing to say. Right. It was not a very popular message. And so it, the, the only way I could conjure to say that was to go back to my historian training and to use footnotes, thousands, thousands of citations in funding the enemy to explain in an unassailable way the structure and what was going on. And that, that worked really well. It had a big impact on 
policymakers and some of the discussions that we're having now about the failure of those things. Mm. I was part of that discussion. With the second book, with Hopeless But Optimistic, Journeying Through America's Endless War in Afghanistan, I wanted to present what it's like to move through a failed war to the broadest possible audience. So I'm proud to say there are no footnotes. And it's basically storytelling. There's these vignettes, these little short chapters of this is what it's like to be here and to see this kind of failure, this kind of waste. And um, here's some funny things that happen Mm -hmm. that are maybe black humor, maybe Mm catch-22 kind of humor of how crazy this war is now. But all these fellows who are participating in this uh, thing that's going on in Afghanistan, they don't see it as a failed war. I mean, they're benefiting. There's a lot of beneficiaries of this war, but I have to tell you that I learned about the failed war from the soldiers yeah. and from the contractors. and They're the ones, and maybe in front of the curtain, they would have to say one thing, but you'd be walking down a hallway and they'd be saying, do you know about this? Have you looked at that website? Yeah. They, they also understand. They got to stay in their lane. They yep. got to do their job, and they did do their job. I mean, I, I can tell you, when I went back for, to do the research for Hopeless But Optimistic, one of the questions I had was, it was obvious that everybody sort of knew it was a failed enterprise. And I wanted to understand how did groups of humans, as in our soldiers, how did they operate? Did they have that same level of courage and honor? Mm-hmm. You know, really live, very vital. They're, they're not ephemera. Yeah. These are very real things when you're, you're in that situation. You bond up pretty tight with people. And I wanted to see, did they keep it together? And I can report, yes, they did. Hmm. It was a failed war, but they continued to operate in the way that I had seen them do it before. You know, the things you you witness and experience in war are so trying to the psyche. And one way to get through it is to believe you have the moral high ground as a soldier and as an army. But if you don't believe that, it makes it that much harder I saw a lot of soldiers that got extremely disillusioned. And, and we have to understand that now it's a volunteer army. Less than 1% of the U.S. population serves in the armed forces. And since 9-11, we have asked that so, small subset of Americans to serve multiple rotations. I, I met one guy who had had 13 rotations, five rotations is not that uncommon, and multiple brain traumas. I mean, there, there wow. are, I, I talked to one combat trauma expert, essentially a combat counselor, hmm. and she was having to devise protocols for soldiers that had so many brain traumas, the number is now failing. Let's say a dozen, dozen concussions, dozen, you know, IEDs going off, that, you know, MRAPs rolling over and banging your head, that kind of stuff. And to where they had no short-term memory. So visualize being on patrol with a soldier who has no short-term memory. That puts the onus on everybody else around him to sort of cover for him in a way. 
Yeah, I, the we talked a little bit about the money, forty-four billion, yeah, a trillion dollars. But the the other thing that we don't really cope with is the incredible human tragedy of this ongoing war, this endless war. There, just last year, there were tens of thousands of Afghan casualties, combatants and civilians, including almost a thousand children killed, including well over 2,500 children wounded. This is out of a, a population of 25, 30 million people. Right. In terms of our soldiers, from these two post-9-11 wars, there are 1,600 amputees. There are 700,000 vets that are 30% or more disabled, 327,000 vets with traumatic brain injuries. PTSD is absolutely rampant. The VA is overwhelmed with post-9-11 injuries and, and wounds, and we're not even really talking about the psychic wounds. I, I know soldiers that are just, everybody knows soldiers that are just struggling. Families. Right. Yeah, I just, the, the price of this is pretty hard, and most of that burden is falling on our military families. They're the ones having to care for these people. Doug, how does this make you feel about your country? It makes me feel like my country needs to make Congress do the right thing. A congressman, uh, he, uh, I sat in his office once and he said, you know, as the lobbyists came in and out of the office, and he said, well, sometimes Congress has to be shamed into doing the right thing. This has become the forgotten war. We don't want to think about it. We're going to think about ISIS or we're going to think about some new boogeyman. In the meantime, this thing goes on. And the generals are showing up now saying, oh, we just need a few thousand more soldiers without explaining how a few thousand more soldiers is going to change things when a hundred thousand didn't. You know, are we going to go for it? Are we going to reescalate? That's certainly what the beneficiaries of the war want. The military wants it. God knows the military industrial complex wants it. Congress wants it because who pays to get them elected? We're just throwing good money after bad. There, there's a great, when I get it, there, the book says hopeless but optimistic, and people are saying, what's the optimistic part? I was just about to do that. And I don't know if this exactly answers it, but my level of cautious optimism has to do with that great business phrase, sunk cost bias. Good business people know you don't throw good money after bad. Right. And so the, the, the beneficiaries of the war are throwing out this term. Well, we've already invested so much blood and treasure. Donald Trump's a businessman. He's gone bankrupt four times. Yep. He knows when to throw in the towel. Will he do that? I don't know. You know, are we going to reescalate? The other phrase that people are using is uh, the, the beneficiaries are saying it's a stalemate. This isn't a stalemate. It's a failed war. Doug, I thank you for joining us, and uh, I wish you never have to go back there again because I hope that the war might be over soon. Thanks, Mike.